0: Would you please pray with me? Lord, it is indeed a a great privilege to be with one another tonight as we celebrate your coming among us. We pray, Lord, that as this word is brought forward tonight, that you would help each and every one of us to see you in a different way. That you would take our minds and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. That you would take our wills and bend them to your own And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. It's great to see you all here with us tonight at Christ Church. And my job is to simply supplement all the beauty that surrounds us tonight and put a finer point on the story. And I want to do that tonight by reflecting on just Verses 12 through 14 that I just read, which says from John's gospel, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the reasons I want to park on these few verses tonight is because it's so unique around Christmas. Uh, you know, it's uh, such a non-traditional in the Christmas story. You didn't hear about any angels, did you? Mary, Joseph, shepherds, star, Bethlehem. Because the reason I'm doing this, it's very easy on an evening light tonight to treat Christmas like a cup of warm, hot chuck. Long on sentiment, but short on life-changing truth, which after all is the whole point of Christmas. Because what John is saying in that text I just read for you, the whole reason that God became human is so that you can be born again. It's in your face. And verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You can't miss it. So we're going to leave Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus for the family services that we had a couple hours ago. And we're going to focus tonight on this mystery of God becoming human. 100% God, 100% human. And that's a mystery. What, how we need that mystery the implications of that mystery in our lives, and what it means for our daily lives. So that's what we're going to look at. First, I want to recognize our need for this mystery. It goes without saying that Christmas wouldn't be Christmas if it weren't for mystery. You know, a jolly old man that lives in the North Pole who knows your name, and whether you've been naughty or nice, is going to go around the whole world tonight and one night and deliver presents to every boy and girl in the whole world? It's a mystery. With the help of flying reindeer and elves, by the way. We love it, don't we? Just watch the Nutcracker. Adults and children are enraptured by this story of a nutcracker who takes on the evil rat king, slays the rat king, becomes a handsome prince, and he and his princess Clara go off to a magic kingdom and rule for eternity where hot chocolate dances with flowers. <laughs> we love it. You pay a lot of money to see that, don't you? Or even mystery or even grumpy shoppers at Crocker Park. People slogging through. I went there the other day trying to do my Ba humbug best and there were a ton of people standing at a Christmas tree in the center of the shopping center that's taller than my house, and Bing Crosby is singing out of this tree in White Christmas. And there's a bunch of people around it just looking up at it going, wow. It's a mystery. We need it. Once a year, Eugene Peterson writes, For a few days at least, we and a million of our neighbors turn aside from our preoccupation with life reduced to biology and economics, and we join together in a community of wonder. And when we do it, it keeps us alive to life that is always more than we can account for. Mystery. See, we need mystery, and we particularly need this mystery tonight. It's who we are. And John, what he's doing in this Christmas story in chapter 1, is he's pressing into that. And he's implying that the nutcracker has nothing over this. This is ultimate mystery. Angels, shepherds singing together. The infinite God becoming finite. The omnipotent becoming weak as an infant. The one who has no beginning, no end. The uncaused cause becomes human. Is born into the world. Wrap your mind around that. Mystery tonight, dear friends. J.I. Packer writes that there is nothing in fiction that is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. Incarnation means God made flesh. That the more you try to understand it, the more staggering it truly becomes. And yet, if we don't push past the sentiment... Push past the chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I love that guitar. It's that vacuum tube amp. Blum, 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 blum. I love that. But we got to push past that because we won't ever be able to understand who we truly are. If we strip this story of the mystery and strip Jesus of the mystery and make him just another man, Then the Bible becomes a fairy tale with stories that just helps us understand forgiveness and healing and redemption. But in the end, like the nutcracker, the curtain comes down and we go back into the sidewalks of Avon Lake Bay Village, Avon and Sheffield Lake, powerless against the evils of this world and powerless against the restlessness that's in your own soul. But if this is more than just words on a page, if Jesus Christ is flesh and blood, and if this actually happened, then it actually offers us hope and a solution to overcome the darkness in the world and the restlessness in your soul. That is our need for this mystery. Secondly, so what's the implication of this mystery? It's found in verse 14... When it says, the word became flesh, that word is the Greek word, logos. We translate the word into it. The logos was made flesh. And any ancient Greek or any ancient Hebrew who have read that would have instantly known what that meant and recognized it. It was a word in particular that was used to describe ultimate reality. We call it virtual reality today. There was a moral order, a moral driving force that held the universe together. There was beauty. There was order. And if you could somehow in the ancient world figure out how to shape your life to this logos, there'd be joy to the world. There'd be peace on earth. There'd be goodwill toward men. And you don't have to be a Stoic philosopher 2,000 years ago to actually know in your bones that that is actually true. I don't care what religious background you are. Listen to the words of Leonard Bernstein describing Beethoven's music. Quote, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Yes, rightness is the word. Our boy had the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the stuff that says that there's something right in the world. There's something we can trust that will never let us down. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about logos. He's saying not only push past Bing Crosby and White Christmas, push past in this mystery your own empiricism. Your, your all, where the idea that all knowledge is derived from our sense experiences. Because when you listen to Beethoven, or you listen to Bach, or you listen to Isaac Watts. When you fall in love, when you get angry at the injustices of the world, what is that? Is that you, it? Is that you know that there should be joy to the world? You know there should be peace on the earth, the goodwill toward men, because you are woven into the fabric of a universe that's held together by beauty and order, and you know that in your bones. So when John comes along and says this Logos, which in English is translated word, he burst the boundaries of the imagination of any philosopher or any religious leader of his day and ever since. It completely rocked the world because what John is saying is the Logos, the word, isn't some rational principle that you need to abide by. It's not some religious principle system or ethic you need to embrace it's a divine person that you can love and relate to with your soul the implications of this mystery is that you don't have to aspire to be a religious person aren't you glad or abide by some code of ethics you can know the logos you can relate to the word and love the word And because we've been created in the image of God, it's why we feel the way we feel when we listen to Beethoven. It's why we aspire for peace on earth, because we're made in God's image. We know that life is more than economic psychology and a 55-inch screen TV. And this begins to explain the mystery of our humanity. And it's in all our Christmas stories. I mean, who do you want to be, Ebenezer Scrooge or Tiny Tim? Who's got a more fulfilled life, Ebenezer or Bob Cratchit? It's a wonderful life. At the end of the movie, how do they describe George Bailey? Here's to my older brother George, the richest man in town. Why? Is it just because of the money that's flowing in? Oh, no, the whole story's about he's poured out his life for everybody else. Because He's discovered that happiness is the source of your happiness is not the size of your paycheck or the shape of your body. It's relational love. It's giving your life away so that others can flourish. Peace on earth. It's giving goodwill toward men. That's virtual reality. And that's what it means to be human. And Christmas comes to us to reveal the only way you're going to understand the mystery of our humanity is to understand the mystery of the word made flesh that's full of grace and truth. But there's also a truth that we have to look at and look that's implied in here. Because you have to ask yourself, well, why isn't there peace on earth? Why is there so much despair as there is joy? Why is it that we can get excited about goodwill toward men and we don't even know our next door neighbor's names in the suburbs? See, the other point that John is making, he's saying, on the one hand, there's this great paradox in John chapter 1, where there's divine intervention, where there's beauty and justice and holiness and mercy and goodness is incarnated in the flesh of Jesus, and we can see him, but if you look at verses 10 and 11 in John, it says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, because when he appeared, we turned our backs on him. We want the light, and yet we humans reject it. What's that? John Stott, the former rector of All Souls Langham Place in London, wrote, Human beings are the inventors of hospitals for the care of the sick, universities for the acquisition of wisdom, and churches for the worship of God. We've also invented torture chambers, concentration camps, and nuclear weapons. We're a duality of dust and glory. We're an enigma to ourselves, he says. That's who we are. We want light, but we cause darkness. We want justice in the world, yet we hold on to our money and our time. We want close, intimate relationships, yet we refuse to forgive the people we love the most. We want to know God in this way, but we refuse to open our Bible, and we refuse to pray. That's who we are, says John in this passage. We're a paradox. And you know it's true, right? You go in a restaurant, and there's a soft lighting. And you go into to you look at a mirror at yourself, and you go, I look pretty good. <laughs> then you go out into the bright sunshine, and you look in another mirror, and you go, oh, gosh, awful. Because the sun exposes all your flaws. So spiritually speaking, what do we do? We run back inside to the, to the warm light, we think. Because what John is saying, it's also, yes, there's grace here, but there's also truth because there's a metaphor for judgment. That is one of the reasons he's come. He says, the light came to the world, the light which enlivens everyone. That's not necessarily happy news because God's not far off. He's near. And part of the truth, what he's come to do, is to expose the darkness in your heart and in mine. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, We've become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. So God has come in Jesus because we need him to come. Because we're 100% absolute rebels and we reject him. So what does this mean? Well, we find the answer in verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he became the right, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In a few minutes, we sing this all the time in the carols, by the way. There's two carols tonight which you're going to hear and you're going to sing. I hope you sing with us. Charles Wesley, the third stanza of uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we're going to sing immediately after the sermon tonight, says this, Mild Jesus lays his glory by, Born that man no more may die, Born to raise the sons of earth, Born to give them second birth. You see, when we're born again, it's essential And it leads to a new life and a new identity. It's essential in that there's no middle ground. Either you grasp who Jesus Christ is or you don't. Anyone who claims to be a Christian must be a born again Christian. And by the way, this is not a type of person. All right? And by the way, you don't want to be that type of person in America today, right? Uh, An emotional experience. People say, oh, he just needed some moral structure. You know, he's gone and got religion. They really can't think for themselves. The problem with that whole view and that whole response to being born again is two chapters later in John chapter 3, there's a guy named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He's older. He's male. He's top of the social ladder of his day. And he's incredibly religious, incredibly moral. He knew the Bible better than you and I all together knew it, and he wasn't self-righteous at all, and he comes to Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him? Nicodemus, you must be born again to understand the first thing about the kingdom of God. (laughs) He's religious. He's gone and got religion. Uh, Nicodemus has more religion than anyone in this room has, and he needs to be born again, according to Jesus. You see, When John is using this, and Jesus uses this phrase, he's challenging traditional religion. He's saying, Nicodemus, nothing you've ever done counts. You must be born again. It's not how good a person you are. It's not how pulled together you are. It doesn't matter about your pedigree. It doesn't matter about your denomination." doesn't matter how good or bad you've been. You must be born again, and you can be born again. It's essential, and it's for every one of us. And what happens in that is that it leads to a new life and a new identity. Because if something is living, it is growing, and it is sensitive to its surroundings, unlike a rock in your yard. You see what happens to people? You grow in your patience. You grow in your kindness, humility, and your faithfulness. Self-control, you become wiser, you're happier, you're deeper, and you understand what it means. You become more aware of who you are, dealing with the suffering in your life, the opposition, and you handle it graciously. That's organic. It's a new life. It's a living thing. And it's sensitive to its environment all around us. And you can tell when a per- this is happening to a person, by the way. They might have been going to church, For years, every single Sunday, year after year, many people, going through all the rituals, they've been baptized, they've been confirmed, they've walked forward at an evangelistic crusade, but they're not born again, because they don't have any spiritual ears to hear, eyes to see, heart to feel, they don't have any spiritual taste. And I know it when somebody comes and says to me, and I know you've had some people say this to you. You know, I've been reading the Bible all my life, and I've, I know that story. And all of a sudden today, the lights came on. God's given them spiritual vision. And I'll say, what do you mean by that? And they'll say, you know, well, it's convicting me in a way I never saw before. Well, you know why? They're born again. I want to say, I don't say it, but I want to say that's because, Pinocchio, you've become a real boy. It's great to see. That's the difference between being religious and being born again. The new implantation of spiritual life. Now, of course, there are patterns of the Christian life that are going to ensue from that. But Jesus would say, I'm not here to make you religious. I'm not here to make you ethical. I'm here to make you born again. I'm not here to make you nice. You're already nice. You're already clean up very well. I'm here to make you new. And by making you new, he gives you a new identity too. He says to all who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That, that's the language of Adoption. You've been brought into the family, not of your own volition. You're his child, whether you like it or not in this way. And he's saying that my heavenly father loves me with the intensity and concern of his only begotten son. Think about that. Jesus says in John 17, father, love them as you have loved me. So to have this identity and live with that knowledge every day, regardless of whatever you're going through, it's powerful. If you've been adopted, you have an an inheritance. Now, there's some in this room that have been finding their significance and their value and their identity in pleasing your parents, in your academic standing, your career, making money, your looks, your relationships, and looking for love, and Or perhaps it's a political cause you've been part of. But I want to remind you that all those identities that you're trying to find yourself in, that goes up and down and you put yourself on the performance wheel if you do that. But this identity in Jesus, when you place your trust in Jesus, changes everything. Because your identity is not based on your performance. It's based on his for you upon the cross. So, what do we do? Well, John tells us, and it's simple and yet it's hard. He says, to all who did receive him, who believe in his name. It, it, other places in the Bible, to be a Christian is to repent and rest in that trust in Jesus Christ. And you hear that word repent, and you say you think. Well, it means stop believing in your mechanics and your name and your works and your identity and rest in what Jesus has done. And that's true. That's what you do. But people take it further and they go, well, I ask God to forgive me for all I've done wrong. Well, it does mean that, but that's not all that it means. Because there are people all over the world who've mechanically become Christians and never been born again. They've asked God's forgiveness for what they've done wrong, And now they promise to live for him. I will live for you, Lord. I will surrender it all. And the problem with that is they don't understand because people who are born don't contribute anything to the birth. I was there for all four of my children. Trust me, Kimmy did all the work. All right? It's not that I need to repent of all the bad things I've done, I need to repent for all the, of all the reasons for the good things that I've done. Trying to be my own Savior and Lord. Trying to run my life my own way. Trying to create my own identity instead of resting in his identity that he's given me as a gift in Jesus Christ. See, to be born again is to say you've done it, that God has done it all. It's all by grace. I do nothing and I take on his unearned favor his grace upon me all you need is nothing and most people don't have it repent means come with nothing nothing in my hands i bring simply to the cross i cling O lord and resting in jesus work upon the cross alone and here's what i think will help you it's hard but here's what helps Later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 16, Jesus says these words, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, as I said, Kimmy gave birth to all four of our children, and it was not their effort. It was all hers. And there was not so long a time ago in our history, before there were epidurals, before there was any medicine and what have you, that all children were born through the suffering and pain of their mother to the point where she might die every birth. And Jesus says, my hour has come. When the hour has come, he always was talking about going to the cross for us. And what Jesus is saying here is, is that you are born again through my pain and suffering. Just like a mother upon seeing her child recognizes it, it was all worth it, you are worth it to Jesus Christ to die upon the cross for because he loved you that much. You are worth it to him. Look at that this Christmas Eve. Reflect on that. Let that, move you, ladies and gentlemen, and rest in that truth tonight in his grace. And as we continue in our service, before we take communion, you'll hear the exhortation, and I will pause. That exhortation is a simple invitation and warning to make sure that we have truly rested in Jesus Christ. We'll pause, and I want to encourage you to participate. This service, this liturgy, which means the work of the people, is 450 years old to almost 2,000 years old. Christians have been praying this for years. And I encourage you to pray the words. Don't just say them. We We don't rush here. And to also sing along the carols, because in them we sing what we believe. So I close our time with that great line from O Little Town of Bethlehem written by Phillips Brooks, who's an American Anglican, by the way. He said, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Amen. And Merry Christmas.